2: Everybody, welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I am joined, as I always am each week, by co host Shannon Bond in the studio. Shannon, how are you?
3: I'm all right. How are
2: you? Okay, we have to start with a reappraisal of some predictions we made just a month ago. Yeah, I'm already. The the landscape of American politics. Uh, Can you believe how quickly things have changed? I'm
3: throwing mine entirely out the window. Well, so we now have word that Michael Bloomberg may be throwing his hat in the ring. Depending on a whole lot of things. Right. Right. So basically, uh, the New York Times had the story talking to some of his advisors you know, he's taking a look at the field, thinking things could get kind of crazy and sounding like what the most likely case for him to enter as an independent candidate uh, would be if Bernie Sanders gets the Democratic nomination and uh, Donald Trump gets the Republican nomination. Both of those things, I think, are still quite questionable.
2: The idea is that he would be the centrist uh, candidate that would sort of split the difference between the two extreme left and right candidates for the Republicans and Democrats. Right,
3: right, right. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Who who does he hurt in in that case? You know, who who does he hurt more?
2: I have no idea. I actually don't think he's going to end up doing it. Right. I'm still sort of uh, I'm still sort of uh, skeptical that he's actually going to go through with it. We've heard this from him before. Right. I will say this though: the most surprising thing that's happened in the last month is that the establishment on the right has swung behind Donald Trump instead of Ted Cruz. That's
3: how much they dislike Ted Cruz. Nobody likes Ted Cruz, except Ooh. for you.
2: <laughs> uh, so to be clear, it wasn't that I liked Ted Cruz. It said, I thought that essentially the Republican establishment would say enough is enough with Trump, and they'd throw their support behind Ted Cruz. But you're right. likability turns out to matter a whole lot more than I'd realized. They really despise Ted Cruz.
3: I know. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure about this because ultimately, if the question is like, who do you think you can control more, who do they think they can kind of pull into line, or who's the party more comfortable getting behind, I mean, Trump is a real reach.
2: Sure. Okay. We should get on with today's show, though, because we've got so much fun stuff happening today. So let's do it. First up on the show, I sit in our New York studios with Michael Mobison. He's the chief of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse. We talk about short-termism and why he's skeptical of the prevailing narrative about how bad it is for the stock market and for companies. Second, we talk to Anna Nikolau about millennials and why it is that they're staying at home and not moving out of their parents' basements, despite the fact that a lot of them have gotten jobs now. Then finally, we talked to Sajit Indap, who's got an amazing story in the FT this week about a back and forth legal battle between some titans of Wall Street. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. First up on the show, we are joined here in the studio by Michael Mobison, head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse and author of, among other books, The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. Michael, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Okay, so our topic is short-termism. You had a paper about this topic at the end of 2014, but it's still very much a controversial topic and it's been very much in the news in the last year or so. For our listeners who don't have a really deep grounding in this, I want to just lay out what the controversy is and then we'll start talking about it. The idea is that a combination of factors has led executives or managers of companies throughout the economy to make decisions that boost their share prices in the short term at the expense of making better decisions that would benefit the company in the long term. Among those factors that are noted are the demand for constant earnings updates by Wall Street, the presence of activist investors who take big stakes in these companies and demand that these companies give money back to the shareholders instead of spending it in some other way, some more productive way. Uh, And then finally, the way that executives themselves are compensated, and especially how their pay is tied to the performance of the share price. And the complaint about short-termism, the perceived danger, is that companies will either give the money to shareholders to boost the stock price rather than spend it in ways that will benefit not only the company, but also the wider economy. Uh, And of course, these distributions back to shareholders usually take the shape of share buybacks or increased dividends. So let's start there, okay? Okay your paper kind of seeks to not quite measure whether short-termism is a thing, but it kind of introduces a framework for thinking about it. So why don't you start by taking us through that?
1: Yeah, thanks, Cardiff. It's a great introduction. Um, I also think about short termism as a slightly broader topic. You mentioned the corporates, and I completely agree with that. But I also think about investors, which you mentioned, and also even investment managers, so money managers themselves. So investors right. as distinct from money managers. And I think, but your point is right. I think there's
2: this claim that there's short termism across the board. Sure, to, to make that quick distinction, mm-hmm. investors also the people who give their money to the investment managers who then invest in the company. Exactly. And thanks for that
1: correction. So a couple things. First is um, this is a very old issue. And you can go back into history and people have been complaining about this for decades. So in some ways, there's nothing new here. And we just should note that there always seems to be a sense that last generation or two generations ago was better than it is today. Right. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing I always like to think about is something called the micro-macro problem, and I think that's a really big deal here. So, and this is a very important thing in social sciences. So, the micro problem typically is we we, we want to understand something. We typically ask people about it. Do you think short-termism is a problem? And I think you talk to most executives and most investors. Almost all of them will say to an individual, "Yes, I think there's some sort of a problem." They feel here. the pressure. They feel it. So they, it's the micro, right? The macro is really what are the outcomes of the system? And, and maybe I can use a, a little bit of a metaphor to try to make this clear. Let's say you're studying an ant colony, right? You can look at the individual ants and, and say, hey, guys, what's going on? The ants themselves really have no idea what's going on. But the colony itself has specific behaviors of foraging and, and aging and adaptation and so forth that you can't really explain by looking at the underlying agents. So one of the first questions I would pose about the short-termism is does mar- do markets reflect it? And there are ways we can do that using sort of standard finance techniques is to say the value of a business or the markets is the present value of future cash flow. We can pencil out that math and doing that basically demonstrate the market is paying for long-term cash flows, right? Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't behaviors to to your point that may be undermining uh, successful long-term success. But for the most part, the market seems to see through this and, and pay for long-term cash flow. So that's the first thing is this sort of micro-macro. Uh, micro, sure.
2: We're definitely going to come back to this issue, the idea that the market rewards or penalizes appropriate short-term versus long-term behavior. But sure. But, but go, go ahead because there are these other, these other issues of how the market would reflect whether or not short-termism is happening.
1: Yeah, no. So, so, so prices. So that that is. It's interesting. At the same time, we have discussions about markets being potentially overvalued or fully valued, um, and people saying there, you know, a lot of M activity. At the same time, they're saying short term exists, and these two things. It's one of the. You kind of have to pick one or the other, right? Because those two things really can't live under the same uh, under the same roof. So that's sort of the first first thought about this. You know, you mentioned something really interesting about companies returning capital to shareholders, and uh, you know whether it's buybacks or dividends. And, you know, we've written a lot about both of those things. You know, the, the, there, there may be a sense that companies are under-investing. And certainly I would say that those companies that are investing a great deal, and we, we can pick companies like, you know, the Amazon.coms of the world, seem to be rewarded in the marketplace, right? Sure. But there is a sense that companies are sitting on their hands. Now, the question is whether that's short-termism or really reflecting sort of the realities of the world. So that's the first question. And, you know, one of the things we like to look at, for example, is asset life. And, you know, we can look at, you know, accountants, when a company makes an, an investment, the accountants put it on the books for some period of time. We can measure that asset life. And what we've seen over the last 30 years is the weighted asset life for corporate America has shortened. And and the logic is not shocking. You know, there are more technology companies, for example, than there are more utility companies, for instance. And that, that has this. So in a sense, the short-termism, to some degree, maybe the more uh, measured investment is, is um
2: Justified. Sure. Can I just explain this to, to our listeners for a minute? So when you refer to asset life, the assets you're referring to are the equipment, the structures, the things that companies would invest in, right, as a part of doing business. And what you're saying is that those things that they invest in, by their very nature... All right those things are changing now and that's
1: precisely the point so we're we're shifting and I think everybody recognizes this from more of an industrially oriented economy to more of a service oriented economy those industrial oriented businesses let's pick utilities as an example they still have these large facilities that have long lives and so forth they're just less important in the overall economic picture than they were in years past. So when you think about the weighted average, like you said, there are more technology, more service businesses, where those kinds of investments are not quite as important. Okay. So that's the basic thing. And, and as a consequence, <clears throat> you know, well, you're know, you a technology manager of a technology business, and your life cycle for your product is relatively short, a year and a half, two years, one year. You're gonna think very differently about the world than someone who says, I'm building a new, you know, power plant that might have a 30 year life. Right. So that that is just this shift in composition. The other thing I would just say is, and and I, you know, I know there have been a lot of people that have been very critical of buybacks and dividends, but in a sense, at the end of the day, what are they doing, what are companies doing is they're returning money back to investors. What do investors do with that? It's not like they sit on the cash and do nothing, right? The whole point of a capitalist system is for money that can't be deployed or perceived to be deployed productively, should be returned to the owners who then redeploy it in other ways.
2: They look for other companies they to invest. They look for other companies to right.
1: invest. So it's been this very interesting pattern. Even uh, you've seen, for example, large mutual fund companies start to invest in these late stage ventures. You know, So you think the Ubers of the world or Airbnbs of the world getting these what are deemed to be very generous valuations in part driven by mutual fund camp that are probably taking cash. From these more mature businesses via buybacks or dividends and re- reinvesting it, so it's not like that money evaporates, not like that money just people sit in their pockets. That's the way that capitalism reallocates capital throughout the economy. So, if if the issue is companies are underinvesting to their detriment, I I, I buy that argument and, and companies should not be doing that. But just On an because, individual basis, right? Sure, but, but some companies, right? Aren't. But the broad idea that companies have excess cash that they're returning to ca- to, to their to, to owners for redeployment into our economy. I certainly don't see an issue with that. In fact, that's what that's what the whole system is supposed to be doing.
2: Sure. So let's talk about the the kind of idea that companies feel a lot of pressure from quarterly earnings guidance, which they have to give to Wall Street, uh, you know, four times a year. Uh, I was intrigued by some research that you cited in your paper, saying that actually companies that miss earnings because they were spending money unexpectedly on investments aren't necessarily penalized. They're penalized when projections for future cash flow long term future cash flow uh turn out to be revised down what does that mean yeah i mean
1: precisely so in other words earnings there's there's a substory to the earnings and it depends why you beat earnings or it depends why you miss earnings and this is sort of an age old topic that financial economists have been looking at for decades is um, there's sort of an underlying quality of the earnings and so the point just to repeat what you just said if a company do- comes up short on their Uh, Projected earnings, but it's because they're making what is deemed to be a fruitful long-term investment. The balance of evidence shows that markets tend to completely live with that. In fact, they they encourage it, and there are plenty of examples where earnings actually go down because of large investments, and the stock market goes up, which is completely uh, consistent with the market taking a long-term view of things. Likewise, there are examples of companies messing around with short-term earnings to make a number, but it's not of high quality, and the market marks the stock down. So the market seems to see through that stuff. So. I think that's completely – that's been, I think, fairly well established in the literature. And so it's not the earnings per se. It's really what's underlying the earnings. And that's a really crucial point for people also to realize in the short-term-ism game. So look, I I think, again, I'm not condoning companies that are making – that are not investing in order to achieve their earnings objectives, that that are passing up net present value positive, attractive project, attractive investments. That's not the point. But the broader point that this is sort of this – Pervasive effect that 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 seeps in every corner of the markets, right? Investors, investment managers, corporates. I think that state that case is uh, substantially overstated.
2: Okay, and in terms of executive compensation, how do you view the potential impact of the way that managers are paid? Uh, and by that, I mean that so much of their compensation is now tied up with the stock price relative to several decades ago when. Uh, It was more in salaries and cash and bonuses. Exactly.
1: I'm sympathetic to this point to some degree, but I'll just mention a couple things. The first is serious academics that have tried to make this link between short-termism and compensation have come up short on this. And so if you read the most serious academic papers on this, they have a very difficult time establishing that with great confidence. The second thing I'll say is if you take just an overall survey of compensation, there are three things that stand out. One is more compensation is long-term oriented than ever before. So long-term oriented is more in place. Second is boards of directors are more independent today than they were in the past. So there has been reforms on boards. And third is governance committees on boards are nearly universal. So if you had to say the broad corporate governance infrastructure today versus years past, I think we're probably in better shape than we have been before. So while, again, I can understand how some companies may be trying to boost the short-term stock price by inflating short-term earnings, um, it doesn't seem like a strategy that, A, is necessarily going to pay off, and it's it's a very difficult statement to make about uh, companies, broadly speaking. The other thing I want to mention, Cardiff, which I think is actually pretty important, is that, again, acknowledging that some companies may be doing like you know lots of press releases to try to get the market excited and so forth. There's also a great deal of evidence for a process of sorting which is to say those investors that are chasing after the news item tend to be attracted to precisely those companies that are giving lots of news, right? So it's almost like a matching process. And, you know, Warren Buffett's got this great line where he says, you know, companies eventually get the shareholders they deserve. So it's those companies that are saying, hey, folks, we're thinking long term. We're going to invest long term. This is the drill. They tend to attract people who think more like partners and think more long term oriented in a more long term oriented fashion. And those companies are saying, We're the latest hot thing, here's our new press release, and so forth, are going to attract much more of a fast money crowd. Now, the evidence shows that those guys do well when the news flow is good. Right. And when the news flow turns to neutral or negative, those people are the first ones out the door. Yeah.
2: So I, I actually find so much of this convincing and certainly persuasive enough to at least cast skepticism on the wider narrative that company managers are always doing this terrible thing, returning money to shareholders. There are some good reasons for it. There are two things, though, that still give me a little bit of pause. One is that we've seen a lot of examples of companies that have borrowed money to boost share buybacks and dividends to give the money back. And in that case, it's like they're altering their capital structure. In order to do so. And I guess I'm a little bit more worried about that kind of behavior than I would be if companies just concluded, well, we've got some excess cash on our books. Our cash flow is very strong. We don't have good reasons to deploy it. We'll give it back to shareholders. They're actively borrowing money in some cases to take take advantage of low interest rates. The second is that I believe this has been studied quite a bit. When companies do give money back to shareholders, they don't often do it at a very good price, that it tends to be very pro-cyclical. Uh, that they essentially, instead of buying low and selling high, as you'd hope, they're basically buying high and selling low, right? Which is not what you'd want. Uh, what do you think about those two
1: points? I, no, I'm, I'm sympathetic to both those points. But let me just say first on the capital structure issue about borrowing to return capital to shareholders. I think from a proper point of view, from finance point of view, you should really be thinking about those two things as separate decisions. And I'm not claiming companies do, but you should be thinking about those as separate decisions. So a company should be thinking about their capital structure, what is an appropriate capital structure given prevailing interest rates, stability of the cash flows, and so forth, and then making a determination on returning capital to shareholders. Now, to your point, and I think this is you know, demonstrably true, given prevailing interest rates, it is very easy to borrow and buy back stock and increase your earnings per share. So it have an optical benefit where there may be no economic benefit whatsoever. So there's no question that some of that is going on. So I, I share that concern. If, our, if as an analyst looking at a company, I would want to see and hear that they're treating those two things separately. And I think you're correct. I think they conflate them and that would be a point of concern. The second point on the, the pro-cyclicality, to your point, look, dividends are viewed by managers. Well, well, let me take one step back. Theoretically, dividends and buybacks under certain conditions are the same thing. And I can demonstrate that, right? But in reality, they're not at all yeah, close, yeah. right? And the biggest difference is the psychology of managers. So they deem dividends to be a quasi contract, right? If I initiate a dividend, I want to keep it and ideally raise it a little bit over time. So, sort of a steady she goes. That has of thing. a kind
2: of semi permanent feel to it. Semi well. permanent
1: feel, precisely. Whereas Buybacks are totally pro-cyclical. In other words, it's like it's a residual thing. Hey, we you know we paid all our bills, we paid our dividends, we got some money sitting we around. Money, we don't need it. Go. Let's buy back the <laughs> stock. Right now, my my response to that is I we like to talk about the three schools of share buybacks. And again, different companies think about different ways. One is sort of the I'm just going to return it to shareholders consistently over time. Sometimes we'll overpay, sometimes we'll underpay, but on average, about fair. That's cool, right? So that's almost like a. a almost a tantamount to a dividend itself, right? The second camp is what I call the intrinsic value camp, which is these are people who say, we know what the value of our stock is, and we'll only buy it when it's undervalued, and we'll lay off when it's overvalued. And that, those are obviously the folks you want to align yourself with if you can. And the third is, um, let's see, impure motives perhaps camp <laughs> uh, would be the third one, which is they may not have motives that are the first two. They're just sort of saying, can we boost EPS? Do we have extra money, you know. And I think the impure motives camp is one that I would worry about as well. So now it's very an interesting issue, though, because uh, I like to say if you're a shareholder. So there are two interesting things. One is if you're a shareholder of a company that's buying back stock, right, as an individual, I presume you own that stock because you think it's undervalued. And if you think it's undervalued, buying back stock, you should welcome with open arms, right? Right. Because you're buying something for less than what it's worth, right? So (laughs) I think that's sort of the the first big thing. The second thing is if you're a shareholder of a company that's buying back stock, doing nothing is doing something. And that something is increasing your percentage ownership in the company, right? In other words, you could sell your prorated amount of shares, create a, a dividend, a synthetic dividend for yourself and be in the exact same spot, right? With X percent ownership and cash in your pocket, so if you're, if you're just paying attention and you're active in that sense of selling as the company is buying, you can stay in the same spot and have cash in your pocket. So you're creating the dividend. So it's funny because people lament about these buybacks happening at high levels, but no one complains about dividends at high levels. But in a sense, they're really the same thing if you're uh, sort of an aware and active shareholder, right? So that's the, I think that's the mistake people, you know, doing nothing is doing something if you're a shareholder of a company repurchasing stock. So those two big arguments, I think, are very powerful. And I present these in institutional investors, and they don't only think about this way. If you own the stock, I perceive you own it because you think it's undervalued,
2: in which case buying back stock you would think would be to your your benefit, right? Yeah. This is really tough because we know right now, for instance, that there's a kind of corporate savings glut, right? And if a company isn't going to give back the money to shareholders, what does it do with it? Well... It could spend the money on investment, but if the company buys a fleet of corporate jets for all of its executives, nobody's going to applaud that, nor should they. It could buy other companies, but you know the track record of M&A is, I think, fairly mixed. It sort of depends on a number of different circumstances. There are a lot of cases where a company will just spend the money to spend the money, and that can go badly. And then there's the option of just keeping the money on its books, but that only contributes to the kind of rush for safe assets that the world has too much of already and which causes all kinds of problems for, you know, macroeconomic policymakers. I don't have any kind of a good solution to that, right? But that does seem to me like a more kind of macro problem than the kind of micro issues that you described just now about how an individual company goes about making its decision. I don't have a question here. I just want to get your thoughts on that. No, I agree with that.
1: all. I think that was very thoughtful comments. I agree with it. Just a couple of things I would tack on to that. One is we've done an exhaustive study of capital allocation in the U.S. We've tracked how the top 1,500 companies in the U.S. have spent every dollar in the last 35 years. And, uh, and, and this is capex, M&A, buybacks, dividends, right. divestitures, R&D, down the line. And what you find is not surprisingly that, for example, CapEx as a percentage of sales has come down, but in part reflecting the shape of the economy, shift, shift in the economy, R&D as a percentage of sales has gone up, right? Which is also what you'd expect. So it's, it's hard to see from that sort of aggregate data that there's some sort of crazy underspending pattern, right? Now, we, it, it troughed all that is CapEx percent percentage sales troughed in sort of 0304 which is really the trough of the commodity cycle. And then when the energy companies start to ramp up, and the energy companies are a huge part of CapEx, by the way, when they ramped up their spending, you know, that 10-year period, we saw CapEx start to lift back to more normal levels. But, you know, where are we on that cycle? You tell me where we are. So that it's it's kind of hard from that, at least from our, our look at the macro data, to say that there's some sort of systematic underinvesting. Second thing I'll say, which I find to be fascinating, you made a comment about MA like not being super value creating and, and certainly- you No,
2: know, I think I, I said that, I, I, that the record is mixed, but that it depends on the circumstances and which a buying another company. So I'm it's agreeing with Case you. by case.
1: Basis. Yeah, I'm totally agreeing with you. So now I'll just say that, you know, uh, th- this has been studied for decades as well and that and the, I think the jury would have come back to say something like, most deals don't create value for the acquiring company. They create value in the aggregate, but not for the acquiring company. And in fact, rate uh, estimates as high as 60 to 70% don't. Now, they're not hugely horrible, but they're not hugely great. That said, since the financial crisis, so call it 2010, 2011, we've obviously seen a ramp up in M&A activity. And actually, the markets greeted M&A as as warmly as I've ever seen in terms of total shareholder returns, which is really interesting. So companies that were doing deals 2010 through 2015 were unusually well-received, right? In fact, a majority of the stocks went up, not down. So that's a really noteworthy thing, and that may go to this issue about investing and right. growth and so forth. Um, part of the cash issue, by the way, this cash buildup, and obviously you see it with the, the big guys, the apples in the world, is this tax issue, right? So these guys are making money offshore, They don't want to repatriate the money, so they just let the money sit there. So that's another issue. It's an interesting question, I guess. Yeah,
2: this is weird, too, because these are some of the companies that borrow money in order to do buybacks because they don't want to repatriate the cash. It's kind of like they're using their offshore cash as collateral for the money they're borrowing in order to buy back shares. That's kind of a weird way. Like, it's just a weird way of doing things. And
1: you're exactly right. I think that's literally the case, is that companies don't generate enough cash in the U.S. to pay the dividends. So they have to borrow against using their, their international cash as collateral relative to repatriating it, right? So, so whether we get any sort of tax reform and, and some of that gets addressed, hopefully that'll happen in the next few years. But that's also been uh, a factor in all this, right? In, uh, in sort of these funny looking capital structures. And then the last thing is, you know, I, I mentioned this before, but it does appear, it was true in the context of M&A, but it also appears that certain companies that are investing fairly aggressively have been rewarded by the market. And we, you know, we could... We could debate whether that's valid or not. The poster child probably Amazon.com. You know, Jeff Bezos from the time the company went public you know, 19 years ago has constantly said, we're going to think long term. They've, they've invested aggressively. And, um, and, and in the face of everyone else basically sitting on their hands, and they've, they've been uh, really well rewarded by the market. Again, so I'm not, it's, not a, it's not a commentary about the stock. But certainly, it's been going on for a long time. And by the way, I think even the journal I mean, most journalists or people, the pundits watch this thing with, they're just bemused by the whole. They don't understand, like, how could this happen? Like, they've trained their shareholders in some way. I'm not sure that's the case. I do think that, I do think that the, the market believe, believes that uh, that growth is the hard thing to achieve today. That returns on capital are probably uh, something they can backfill in their in their business model. And if that's the case, there may be some...
2: Yeah, some plausibility. The less-
1: Just one of the comment card, if I want to mention about all this stuff is, is that that the world has changed a lot in the last fifty or sixty years in terms of short termism, and one of the one of the common laments is that you know, for example, investors are turning their portfolios over much more frequently. But if you go back to nineteen sixties, again, this sort of apparently idyllic period of time in nineteen sixties, most stocks were held by individuals. Transaction costs were massively higher than they are today. They were regulated, by the way, to be massively higher than they are today. Capital gains taxes were higher. Information, you know, quarterly earnings weren't started to be released until 1970, so information there's obviously no internet, so information was much more difficult to get, much less timely. Average person on the street is not getting a you know 10k's. It was just a very different, and no computers, right, for the most part for regular people. It was a very different world, and so. Stands to reason people were less active because they had no, they had no capability to be letting the owner's transaction costs, no information, so forth. So this is the other question I would just pose out loud is, is that the world we want to go back to? Is that the world we think everything was so great? Or, you know, I'm not saying the world is perfect today, but we clearly have very low transaction costs, lower capital gains taxes, better information flows. Reg FD means that mom and pop get information in theory, the same time as institution. You know, it seems to me governance principles are much better than they've been before. So I, I get some of the argument. By the same token, it's you know, what are the remedies to this? You know, and, and going back to the 1960s
2: or 70s doesn't seem to me to be the, the, the clear path to doing that. And I think we're going to leave it there. Um, <clears throat> Michael, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners?
1: Well, Cardiff, the book I'm reading now, which has been a, bit a book, book that's been around for a while, is uh, Catherine Schultz's book, Being Wrong. And it's a 300-page treatise on how we are wrong about things and how we have a really difficult time with dealing with that. And so, um, obviously, the investing world or the business world is a a field where it's really easy to be wrong and very difficult to constantly update your views. And it's just a really interesting read um, from a philosophical point of view, from a psychological point of view of how to think about being wrong and
2: maybe taking the optimistic spin, which is how to learn from being wrong. Michael Mobison, head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse, author of the Success Equation: Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. My pleasure. Come back. And in our next segment, Shannon and I are joined by Anna Nicolau of the FT, who's got a story. About how her generation just won't leave home. Millennials, young people, 18 to 34. Anna, welcome back. Hi, Cardiff. Okay, so this, this story, to be a little bit more serious, uh, actually has big economic implications in addition to it being a very kind of interesting sociocultural uh, idea. So, why don't you take us through the basic premise of your story?
0: Right. So, I think the basic idea is I mean, we've been seeing stories since the recession basically talking about young people being pushed into their parents' basements and not really being able to start their life because the jobs market was so bad when they entered the adult world. And now we're seeing the economy is bounced back. For the large part, the jobs market is quite strong in the U.S. right now. And so economists in the past few months or past year have kind of been looking at, well, we were expecting millennials now to move out and go start buying houses and getting married and all of that. And that really hasn't materialized so far. So I think that's kind of a big question lingering over people that have been studying this is why are they still not doing these
2: things? They stayed home despite a better job market, despite presumably some of them now having gotten jobs, but they still haven't moved into homes or apartments of their own.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the home ownership rate, I think, went down again to its lowest level since they started tracking it this year. And the percent of millennials living with their parents is also higher than it was a year ago or five years ago.
3: So what are some of the factors that people are sort of considering and thinking about this? I mean one of the first one things that jumps to my mind of course is debt, is student debt, right? People who have graduated and are sort of looking at like this looming pile that they're going to be paying for the rest right. of their life and really do I want to take out a mortgage at this point to add to that?
0: Yeah, for sure. It was interesting. So I as as part of this project, I talked to probably about 20 millennials about what they were doing and why they weren't buying a house. And a lot of people, I think probably the biggest answer was student debt saying you know even if they even if they it's manageable for them now they still see well i i took out this huge loan that i probably shouldn't have before do i really want to do that again with a mortgage that i can't afford now and also even looking at people's credit history cuz now people who maybe they missed a few payments when they were just getting out of school or struggling and now they're on their feet but those few payments that are missed are lowering their credit scores and now that we're in this post crisis era a lot of the traditional banks who would be lending out mortgages are much more strict with their lending. So some of those people just can't even get a mortgage now or a reasonable mortgage based on what happened. So that seems to be really a big thing for people still.
2: Yeah, I guess uh, one other thing that comes to mind is just the kinds of jobs that people are getting. So there's been this big dichotomy in the economy between the fact that jobs growth has been fairly robust in the U.S., but at, at the same time, wage growth, how much money people make, has been kind of soft. And I guess I'm wondering if that plays a big role in this as well. In other words... You have a job. That doesn't mean you're doing great,
0: right? Yeah, I think also. I mean, economists would call it underemployment, saying that you know wage growth has been fairly weak. There's a lot of part-time jobs. People talk a lot about this this gig economy, where you know you're doing something kind of it's not it's not as stable as things used to seem. People aren't going and starting in a large company and staying there for 40 years, which I think I think people I think millennials are very cognizant of that. And a lot of people I talked to said, well. I have a job now, but who knows what will happen in a year or two. What if I have to move or something else happens? I think there's the sense of insecurity. So even if you have a job and things seem good now, the fact that they saw things so bad makes people hesitant a lot. And also, I mean, the, the kinds of jobs that are out there. So when I talk to people, people that were in the STEM field, so science, technology, all of that, they were very much like, "Oh, yeah, I get offers all the time, I'm being recruited for stuff, but I'm a very like fully aware that other people are not in that position, so I think a lot of it is kind of an uneven jobs recovery
2: inequality of a
0: yeah, kind. and I think that also the interesting point um to bring up is is
3: like there's a lifestyle aspect too." you know, you're seeing gen- people in general are living in cities, right? Where The urban population has grown. You know, if you're young and you're coming out of school, even if you're in a good field, you're likely to actually to end up in a place like New York or maybe San Francisco, places where it's really, really hard not just to buy, but even to rent without a lot of roommates. You know, just like sort of the possibility of thinking, like looking around being like, well, even if I wanted to buy, there's just like, it's not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, that seems to be happening to a lot of my friends.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're here in New York. A lot of the cities where there is a lot of jobs growth are also the ones where house prices are now higher than they were in 2006. So people here, yeah, even if you're have, even if you working at a good company, you're probably spending a lot of money in rent already. So that makes it more difficult to save. And even so, I mean, apartment apartment prices and condo prices here are just really high right now.
3: I guess the question I have sort of thinking a bit broader is what what is the impact sort of on the wider society? The fact, you know, obviously we, we can imagine what the impact might be on a young person who's unable to do this, unable to build credit in the in sort of the way you'd expect and you not have these kind of assets. But, you know, if, if they're also, you know, if they're not making these big purchases and that may be changing sort of the tax base, you know, what does that mean for, you know, government spending and for sort of the social safety net that we're already concerned about? I mean, I'm not sure that any of us have any confidence, right, that we're going to have much support for retirement. But, you know, kind of there are society-wide impacts to these to these habits of a, of a particular generation, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think – I mean, the one thing we're seeing, I think, across the board, not just in housing, is that millennials are fairly cautious in terms of spending and even just committing to things, buying a car, buying a house, stuff like that. I think if that we see this, I think, I mean, I've been reading a bunch of stuff also saying, well, maybe this is going to become a structural shift, not just a temporary one-hit thing. I mean, I think it still remains to be seen what will happen 10 years from now if it really has an impact on the housing market, because not just within millennials, but the population at large, homeownership, is historically quite low right now.
2: Although millennials do say that eventually yeah. they do want to have their own home. They That's do the other want to move thing. out on their own. They just haven't done it yet.
0: Yes. So I think maybe probably the next five years or so will kind of be a test to see if they actually follow through on that.
2: The um, cultural issues here, I think, are absolutely fascinating, right? Because when you think about the uh, situation that young people, college graduates in particular, when you think about the labor market that they graduated into, right, it was disproportionately hard on them. A lot of them, if they could find a job, had to take a job that didn't take full advantage of their education and their talents, right? And it's only recovered very, very slowly. It's been this terrible and kind of unusually bad recovery, something like we haven't seen really since the Great Depression. And I guess I'm wondering what the impact will be on how young people now assess risk throughout their lives, so there's a pretty good chance that this particular category of people will be thriftier, maybe even more industrious and more frugal than their predecessors, precisely because their assessment of how risky their lives will be is so different from previous generations,
3: and they may have seen their parents you know go through right like foreclosure. Or you know dealing with credit card debt and those mean if if that's something you kind of grew up with you can imagine that having a huge impact on your own habits
2: right but but even like the the kind of acceptability of living at home Mm -hmm. might itself change precisely because so many more young people have done it for such a long stretch of time it might just not be as big a deal going forward right and that's not necessarily a bad thing there are trade offs on the one hand the housing market may not be as robust, and all the spillover effects, which are typically pretty beneficial for the economy, won't materialize. But at the same time, it also means that the savings rate, which was probably too low in the years and decades, actually, before the financial crisis, will be a little bit higher, which means that people will have a little bit of a cushion the next time there's a downturn. This is all really fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we saw so people who came of age during the Great Depression, they had they invested in stocks a lot less than other generations So I think a similar thing we're seeing playing out here, well, this is what happened to me. This is what I know of the world from being on my own. So I think it's pretty natural to have kind of a distrust for a lot of the systems that screwed you over and just not knowing, I mean, should I be taking any kind of risk in this environment?
2: Yeah. We have a colleague as well, Sarah O'Connor, who just wrote a column about how precisely because of the difficult circumstances into which today's graduates have found themselves, a lot of them are less willing to kind of demand higher wages even in cases where they might deserve it and that that's part of the reason that wage growth has been sluggish and that if that persists essentially a big group of people is going to be kind of screwing themselves for totally understandable reasons right and in a time when labor isn't getting as much of the income as capital as companies essentially and part of the reason might be that they're just nervous there's this kind of lingering fear that something like what happened after 2008 and 2009 might happen again.
3: Yeah. Well, you see, I mean, there's more competition. And there's also definitely still the sense that, you know, there's competition from people older and more qualified for you than you are for the same jobs, you know, and so you can't kind of take anything for granted and, and pushing for that raise might just might not seem worth it.
2: Yeah. I have a ton of respect for today's young people, by the way. They were essentially left the economic generational equivalent of a massive turd on their doorstep <laughs> by the prior generation? No, they really were. And they've had to kind of hack their way through. Basically, anybody who has a job and can like pay their rent or even afford to buy themselves a beer, I've got a ton of respect for.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why I think it's funny because you see so much talk about this being a lifestyle choice or stuff like that. And it's just for some people, it definitely is. But I think a lot of it is what we talked about. It's fear. It's also being literally not able to afford doing a lot of the things that people in your previous generations did do in their twenties. So yeah, give us a break.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Anna, what's your long form recommendation?
0: I've actually been listening to death, sex, and money on WNYC. Um, and they had a podcast last month about living alone, which was kind of playing into this story as well. Cause I think especially in New York or LA or expensive cities, living alone can also be seen as a status symbol because you know how expensive it is to live on your own in an apartment here. And there's was just a lot of interesting different types of people talking about the pros and cons and things that happened in their lives that led to that.
2: Anna Nikolau, thanks so much for joining thanks,
0: us. Thanks, Cardiff. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you.
2: And joining us now in the studio is Sujit Indap of the Lex column. But he's here because he's got a fantastic long-form piece for the FT called Wall Street's Battle of the Bankers, co-written with James Fontanella Khan. And it's the story that, well, I'm just going to let Sujit tell it. But Sujit, why don't you start actually first by introducing the main players?
4: Sure. So this involves some of the biggest hitters on Wall Street, uh, particularly in the area of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, The biggest name is Joe Perella, who uh, even casual observers of Wall Street will, uh, will recognize the name. Joe is 75 now. Uh, he got really famous during the 70s and 80s. Uh, M&A before then really wasn't an important field for investment banks. It was considered a backwater. The most important job uh, working with companies was really helping them raise money. And so there's a group of people in the 70s and 80s who really revolutionized M&A, made it a very profitable business, made it a very uh, sexy, glamorous uh, job because companies at that point realized one way to grow quickly is to actually buy other companies. That really wasn't uh really wasn't that important before uh, the seventies. And Joe, uh Joe was there for that, along with say four or five other guys. It's a big revolutionary figure in MA.
2: Uh in the context of this story though, he's important because he's the co founder of a company called Perella Weinberg, an that's, MA firm Boutique. That's
4: right. So he was uh, he started uh, Pearl Weinberg in two thousand six. He had been at Morgan Stanley until two thousand five. Had been there about ten years, and so he has a startup firm called Pearl Weinberg, which he founded with Peter Weinberg, who was also a very important guy. The Weinbergs are royalty on Wall Street, uh, Peter's grandfather, Sidney, basically made the modern uh, Goldman Sachs. A lot of Weinbergs have worked there and done very well. So he founds his firm The great fanfare with Peter Weinberg in 2006, raises a lot of money, makes a big splash. Uh, and at the outset, he hires a guy named Mike Kramer, uh, who is a restructuring banker. Uh, restructuring is an important niche, but it's relatively small compared to kind of M&A generally. Uh, and in that world, there's Uh, maybe 10, 20 people who really matter amongst lawyers and bankers. Michael Kramer is one of them. So Joe and Peter hire Michael Kramer to found the restructuring group at Pearl Weinberg.
2: Okay. what, What do restructuring bankers do, first of all?
4: Sure. So when companies are in bankruptcy or approaching bankruptcy, they need to hire an advisor to negotiate with their creditors. And so these restructuring advisors like Michael Kramer will come up with the turnaround plan, the actual terms on how debt is exchanged into the new company, They really uh, organize the, the negotiations around these complex financial restructurings when companies are about to go bankrupt.
2: Okay. So we've got Joe Perella and Peter Weinberg. They've got this company that bears their name, Perella Weinberg. And then you've got Michael Kramer, who they hire after founding their new company. Michael Kramer is leading the restructuring banking group. And then things start to get a little bit weird. What happened?
4: Right. So he works there about seven years. And Kramer is known as being a pugnacious guy on Wall Street. Restructuring is kind of a nasty business. And the personalities and the type of people who do well are probably a little bit different than the traditional M&A uh, world where Joe and Peter are from. So seven years in, in 2013, 2014, Michael Kramer figures out that his uh, status within the firm is eroding. He's very good at his job. He's bringing in money, but he's just not getting along with, with Peter in particular. And so he begins to wonder how how much more time he, he has at Pearl Weinberg.
2: Okay. So did it look at that point as if uh... – he was going to be sidelined or perhaps even fired at some point?
4: Yeah, so he had been uh, formally demoted. He had been the head of the technology media telecom group. There's some controversy for he had been demoted from the management committee, which is the group that leads the firm. Uh, and so his, his status is clearly eroding. There's some dispute on exactly how – He was being demoted, but he knows his popularity is slipping. And so he's having conversations with his bosses. There's a bunch of options on the table. He could stay in some role. He could leave. He could start a new firm with the blessing of Perola Weinberg. There's all these options that are out there for
2: him. And what was the option that he chose?
4: So he thought that one thing he could do was potentially start a new firm and Perola Weinberg could potentially invest in that firm. And so,
3: and some other some other bankers, have right? Left so Carl he, Weinberg in the that's same right. Way.
4: So he had a team of say around ten bankers, and those bankers they claim were also unhappy at the firm, and they were thinking about options, uh, what their own options were apart from apart from uh, Kramer. And so there were some discussions uh, that the group had. This culminates with a meeting at Michael Kramer's house in Connecticut in January of 2015. The group gathers and talks about what their options are. The controversy is this. Bankers can't just pick up and leave. The firms have invested a lot of money in them, and so their employment contracts call for a very specific way for them to resign. And so what's going to happen over the next few weeks after this January meeting is uh, is the dispute, really. Did, uh, did Kramer potentially start or try to start a new firm in violation of what his employment contract says he can do?
2: Okay, let, let's talk about these contracts, okay? They have to be legally drafted in such a way as to be enforceable. In other words, if I work for a bank and I don't like it and I want to go set up my own outfit, my own company, and I want to hire some people on my team, I can't just you know next week do that. If I've signed one of these contracts upon employment, right, there are restrictions in place. Uh, so let's talk about the contracts themselves. What are the restrictions in place? for a contract like that of Michael Kramer when he's thinking about leaving Perella-Weinberg.
4: Right. And so the the key contractual provisions are called restrictive covenants, and there's three key ones. One is called garden leaf, uh, which is a common term you see thrown out uh, in news stories. Basically, it says uh, when you leave you have to sit out, sit on the sidelines for three months or six months. Uh, During that time, you get your base salary, but you're not allowed to- From your employer that you're Yeah, from your current employer, they pay your base salary and you are sitting out, you are gardening, if you will. (laughs) And so during that garden leave, you're on the sidelines, you're not working for a new company, you haven't started your own company, you're not calling your clients. And that uh, just allows your present employer to uh, tell current clients, hey, we're still here, we still have a relationship, and allows them to maintain the firm relationship. The other two uh, key restrictive covenants are non-solicits and non-competes.
2: Non-solicits? Yeah, non-solicitation. non solicitations and non Non-competition. Yeah, right. non-competition.
4: Right. And essentially what that means is if you leave, you cannot tell your team that, please leave and join me. You respect the relationship your, your coworkers have with the, with the company and you leave them alone for a certain amount of time. Non-competition is the same idea. You're not going to start your own firm. Uh, as well, so those are the the key elements in most banker contracts that just say you know what you have to you have to cool off for a little while if you want to leave.
3: Are the so are those clauses actually enforceable? I mean, are they do they stand up in court?
4: Uh, that's a great question. And so the general principle of restrictive covenants uh, is that they are legal. They are governed by state law, and in New York, they generally are, as a principle, allowed. The devil is is in the details, and they can be held uh, unenforceable. It's just just a matter of how aggressive you are in writing to them. So uh, if you say you can't compete for 10 years, that's probably going to be not upheld in a court. Uh, If it's three months, probably okay. So there there are some tests that uh, judges enforce on how reasonable they are, how protectable the interest of the employer is. So it's really a question of what a judge says. What is most interesting, though, about these clauses is that they are almost never litigated. Because bankers and firms realize litigation is bad, publicity is bad, we'll just sort it out privately, we'll come to some kind of compromise, and everyone will be happy.
2: You don't want to get the reputation of being the bank or the company that is constantly suing its former employees to keep them, because then people realize, number one, that you're losing employees, and number two... That you're the type of company that at least seems vindictive, so in the first place, people might not want to go work for you. They go right. work for somewhere and else. And there's a great
4: quote from a lawyer in, in the piece about firms are be, both buyers and sellers of talent. So whatever the law says, you're also worried about your reputation and your image uh, in in the in the Wall Street community.
3: But so in this case, the reason we know all these details is that it is being litigated.
4: Yes, and so this is really the the fifty million or sixty million dollar question. That's the amount of money that's, that's at stake here. Why is this uh, dispute gone? Uh, why is it advanced to the point that both sides have filed complaints? Tell us what the dispute is first. So we, there's this meeting where Michael Kramer meets
2: with a bunch of his former teammates, right? Right. The bank gets wind of it. Perella Weinberg hears about
4: it. And then what happens? So this uh yeah, that meeting happened in January of last year, 2015. A few weeks later... Kramer's having kind of final discussions about what his future is going to be. This is coming to a head. Somehow over President's Day weekend, according to the complaints, the firm gets wind of an, an actual plot to uh, that Kramer and his team are about to leave. That is their that is their claim, that they were they were unaware of some kind of scheme that this group was planning to leave. They get wind of it. And on President's Day Monday of 2015, four bankers, including Michael Kramer, are fired by a... By a phone, via voicemail. (laughs) Via voicemail. Nice touch. (laughs) And the voicemail was actually canceled on the company phone, so they actually never. Kramer says he never even got the voicemail, (laughs) Uh, and so they are fired for cause because the firm claims that they violated their employment agreements by plotting to start their own firm that was going to compete with PWP in violation of what their employment contracts say. Kramer's assertion is this that. We never had any plan. My position was eroding. We were having conversations about what our future could be. We figured we'd come to some kind of mutual conclusion, but at no point did I solicit my employees. In fact, they they may have the employees themselves may have my employees themselves may have actually had the idea of starting a new firm, but it was never my idea. And so we thought we would just come to some kind of conclusion as my position is slipping, and we would have sorted it out and so you fired me before we could even come to that compromise. And then what? And then what? So for several months the sides kind of uh, negotiate, uh, there's gonna be a possible settlement. Kramer actually starts his own firm, which is what the uh, which is what they I guess Perella was afraid of, a firm called Ducera Partners. Those settlement discussions ultimately prove fruitless, and so we get to October and Perella Weinberg Partners drops a lawsuit saying you guys violated your employment agreements. Therefore, we're going to keep the $60 million in equity that you have tied up in this company for ourselves.
3: And they can still do that even though they essentially, they're suing the people that they fired. So if if you get fired in this case, can you go start another firm or do the contracts still apply? Yeah.
4: So their assertion is, yeah, it does apply. We fired you because you violated those contracts. Uh, And so the question is, Kramer is a very early employee in PWP. I guess they're within the first few months of its founding. So his equity is worth almost $60 million. They claim he forfeits that by by these violations. And so that's one issue. There's also the issue of his new firm and the fees they're earning. And potentially, PWP could say, those are our clients. They belong to us. We're going to claw back what you've earned at this new firm, too. So there's a bunch of things that, uh, that have to be resolved.
2: It's a high-profile dust-up on Wall Street.
4: What do you think
2: is going to be the kind of wider impact of whatever – settlement or solution or outcome results from this kind of uh, contentiousness?
4: Well, I think employees are going to be much more careful about how they lead a firm when they want, when it's time to go. And so they're going to think very carefully about what their employment contract says and what kind of actions they take in those days and weeks leading up to, to a resignation. What's interesting to me is that investment banks, Wall Street, these are all people businesses. And so firms want to grow, they want to expand, and they always have to be hiring people. But the question is, how do you do that in a way that still maintains your culture? Mike Kramer is a very different guy than Joe Perella and Peter Weinberg. Initial employees of this firm are close associates of those guys from other firms, and so they probably fit well together. But they didn't have any restructuring bankers uh, at their previous employers, Peter and Joe. And so they have to hire someone Blindly, or I mean, not blindly, but they have to hire someone from outside their uh, their comfort zone. And so, how do you grow a firm? How do you add practices and still maintain cohesion and avoid these kinds of uh, human uh, human resource disasters?
2: Yeah, it's it's so interesting that all of this came about essentially because of an internal inability to get along, rather than because somebody necessarily screwed up.
4: Right. It's very interesting, Perl and Weinberg, and their complaint go out of their way to say Mike Kramer's a great banker. He's good at his job. He brings in money. It's just that he couldn't get along, play well in the sandbox, and uh, that's why we're here. Yeah. I
2: suspect that like somebody
4: who doesn't follow Wall Street too carefully will read a
2: story like this and think, God, what a weird way of doing things. What a bunch of like vain, rich dorks, essentially. Right? Uh, and yet, at the same time, this this really is how it works.
4: Yeah. I mean, I had a banker, a very successful one, say, why is this going on? I mean, it makes our industry look so bad. They're fighting over millions of dollars. Why can't they just split the difference and move on? It's really, uh, it's really not a, a great moment for for the industry. Fascinating,
3: Sujit. What's your long-form recommendation this week?
4: So this is a story that uh, everyone seems to be reading, but you, if you have not, you should go do it right away. It's the story from New York Magazine about a company called Relativity Media, founded by this guy Ryan Kavanaugh, who's this hotshot who started a film production company signed up a lot of uh, famous uh, actors and now has gone bust and so that boom bust story is uh, pretty amazing even by hollywood standards it's a great one sujit
2: indap of the lex column thanks so much for joining
4: us man thank you for having me
2: Okay. And Emilia Mahasa couldn't join us for the follow-up segment. Uh, but Shannon, we've got a special treat, I think, for our listeners. We are answering a question, a really good one. From a student listener, her name is Mary Claire. She goes to Trinity College, Dublin. She and her group are doing a report on the Financial Times as a kind of standard bearer for globalization. And her question has to do with whether or not podcasts are part of the FT's decision to bolster its online presence as a response to disruption in the print media industry. Uh, Okay, so there's a few different ways that we can tackle this question. As it happens, Shannon is, of course, the FT's media correspondent, so she's sort of the perfect person to to get us started. Shannon, what do you think? Podcasts as a strategy to bolster the FT's online presence.
3: Well, I'll start with saying we're, of course, not speaking for the Business side of the FT, we, no.
2: we, are, we are sort of exposed to this through editorial, or the FT at in all. general. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we speak for ourselves, and that's really it. Exactly,
3: as always on this podcast. Yeah. I think yes. I think as we all know, the print industry has changed dramatically, is changing dramatically, um, and every news organization wants to take advantage of the fact that you know people now are equipped with mobile phones, they're equipped with you know widespread access to the internet, lots of different ways and times of day to be consuming content and now that we're all content makers right so so you get you see these big pushes into video you see pushes into audio some of that has to do with revenue strategies in particularly in digital media you know video advertising rates are quite strong that you know podcasting is probably still a very small proportion of revenue for most companies and it's early days yet it's very early days but yeah from the point of view of you know, we know there are people out there that we think might be interested in what we have to do, and they're not all necessarily going to be reading the paper or even reading the website. Podcasting gives another way of reaching some of those people. And then for us as a subscription business, it's also, you know, a, a different type of play because uh, our podcasts are free. So it's another way of reaching an audience who may not be subscribing um, or who may not, you know, be kind of in our traditional footprint. Right, and to,
2: to put this into the context of What Mary Claire and her group are studying, the FT is a kind of standard bearer for globalization in general. This is, I think, as much a technology story as it is a globalization story. Absolutely. It's technology that's kind of messing with the traditional ad-based print model. At the same time, globalization is the reason that people in faraway lands are interested in what the FT has to say. We certainly have a very global audience. Our coverage of economic and politics and business is itself global. And the mobile strategy that you just talked about, I think, is kind of crucial here, right? I mean, the the sort of proliferation of mobile phones to places that are fundamentally lacking in even basic other items, right? So mobile in Africa is a payment system. In China, where people use it to access the internet quite a bit. And places where people
3: people don't have a PC, right? right? They're going straight from essentially no internet connection to a mobile internet
2: connection. Right. And podcasts are kind of perfectly suited to that. But at the same time, we know from your writing that the podcast audience still isn't that big even in the US. No, and the US is, is
3: where it's biggest. Yeah. So that's another another area where you can get a lot of US listeners. But yeah, no, it's still I mean it's still a you know less than 20% of the US population listens to podcasts on a monthly basis. So I think, you know, for us and for a lot of other organizations you're now seeing putting some weight behind podcasting. That's a bet that it's going to grow at the kind of acceleration you've
2: seen elsewhere, I mean, that's it's still way too early to tell. You know what's interesting about podcasts too, though, is that it sort of shows how, especially within a media company, not everything has a perfectly attributable return on investment, ROI, right? Yep. Podcasts are part of the overall suite of services that the FT offers um, and because there's a demand for it, a new and growing demand for it, I think the FTE would be kind of crazy not to at least try to experiment, to tinker with it. And that's kind of what we're doing. The other thing I would note is that this is also something that's a greatly enjoyable thing for some people to do. So those of us who write about our respective beats, economics in my case, media and tech and politics in your case, you know, this is another way of expressing ourselves. It's great fun. So don't forget, I mean, this is kind of a, a minor point, but To those of us who are podcasters or people who host podcasts, uh, it's just great fun. And it's a kind of a way of keeping us happy, too.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's a different way of talking about a story and and getting to have some of those conversations we'd probably be having anyway in the newsroom. Uh, Getting to have them in here and and share them with an audience is kind of fun.
2: Indeed. Mary Claire, I hope that answer helps you out. Best of luck to you and your group at Trinity College. Shannon, to verb and noun, what are you long-forming this week for our listeners?
3: My recommendation is, uh, in a podcast episode, BuzzFeed's Another Round interviewed Valerie Jarrett, uh, the Obama advisor. Just really super interesting, fun interview touching on like, what it's like to work in the White House, uh, issues over the Black Lives Matter protests in British Chicago, being a working woman, and of course, Hamilton, our favorite topic. So highly recommend
2: that. Such a great show. Okay, mine is a book called Mad Men Carousel by Matt Zoller Seitz a TV critic. It is essentially a a critical companion, as it's called, to all of the episodes of Mad Men, the television show. Um, But it's not just a recap of those episodes. It's also an attempt to tie together all of the disparate themes that you see in the show, a show that, by the way, I still consider to be some of the most beautiful television uh, that have come out of America, even now, our golden age of television. All right. Shannon, I'm a year older than you are. Okay. I am... Firmly pre-millennial, whereas I think it's a little sketchier for you. So since you have all that youthful vigor, why don't you start closing us out?
3: Thanks so much for joining us. As always, uh, you can give us a call. Let us know what you think of the show, what you'd like us to talk about. Ask us your own questions, 917-551-5012, or record a voice memo or send us an email to Chat at ft.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N. P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia.
2: If anybody's wondering why I have such a favorable impression of millennials, look no further than the youngster Amy Keene, the amazing producer and editor of this podcast. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We will see you here next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.